Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open His Word. Father, we thank You for Your inerrant, infallible Word given to us as a gift that we might know You, that we might know Your thoughts, and that we might know how we ought to live as Your creation, as Your people. So Lord, speak to us through Your Spirit this morning, through Your Word, uh, that Your Spirit would guide us into understanding and not just understanding, but then applying Your Word to our life. That we might then live in glory to You. So we ask Your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, ta- turn to the book of Psalms and to Psalm 44 this morning. Knock, knock. Stanley. I see you guys are Blues fans. Oh, yeah. In early May, the Blues were heavily favored by the experts to win the Stanley Cup this year. But, as most of you know, by the end of May in Game 7 of a seven-game playoff series with the San Jose Sharks, they were eliminated and missed the Stanley Cup Finals again. It's been so close so many times, but it's been 45 years since the last time the Blues made the finals. And in their 48-year history, they have never won the Stanley Cup. Blues fans have gotten rather used to seasons that start well, but fall apart in the end. We're in Psalm 44, and in a way, this psalm seems rather like that. It begins with great praise. Verse 1, Psalm 44. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face. For you delighted in them. The singer, the songwriter, lists us in this great, fabulous song of praise, and he begins by pointing back to the days of Joshua and says, God helped our forefathers. We heard all the stories, he said. Our fathers taught us. We learned them in synagogue, in Sabbath school. We learned about everything you did when you, in the good old days, when you afflicted and drove out the nations, the Canaanites, and when you set the Israelites free and you planted them in the land. God, we know that it was you that did all this. It wasn't the Israelite sword that accomplished it. It wasn't the Israelite strength which saved them. But it was your hand, God. It was your arm, your favor upon them that accomplished it all. Then verse 4. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. He moves from talking about the distant past, the ancient people, ancient history, and makes it, a very personal declaration. God, You are my God. You are my King. 
Then verse 5. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually. We will give thanks to your name forever. He says, God, not only did you help our forefathers, and not only are you my God, but God, you help us today. Just like with our forefathers, Lord, it is you who gives us victory against our enemies. And so we don't trust our own military might because we recognize our sword and our weapons can't save us. It's useless to trust in our own strength, in our own resources. Lord, in our lifetime, You've saved us from our enemies and You've put them to shame. So He says there in verse 8, we boast in You continually. We we gladly identify with You, Lord. We wear the t-shirt. We wave the flag. We sing the songs. We want everybody to know we are Your people. And we give You thanks. And He ends this section right at the end of verse 8. You'll see that word Selah. Selah means... Pause. Reflect. He wants us to reflect what a marvelous, marvelous God we serve. He wants us to sit here and remember for a moment and reflect on all that God has done and give Him praise for all He's done in history. He wants us to take a few minutes and give Him praise for all that He's done in for us today. And, and He wants us to be reminded that ultimately... Every protection that we have, every providential care we have every, ever experienced, every blessing that we have has not come to us through our own abilities, nor through our own strength, nor through our own wisdom or our own resources, but it's come through God's hand. Then verse 9 begins with a little three-letter word. Changes everything. That little word, but, it always brings about a contrast. The Blues were favored to win the Stanley Cup, but then came the Sharks. Often that little word, but, as we saw last week in Psalm 103, that little word, but, brings good news to a bad situation, but not today, not this time. It seems that our songwriter writes that word, Selah, and he says, oh, it says, Take a pause and maybe he takes a break. He puts down his quill and heads across the street to Starbucks. Grabs a cup of coffee and by the time he gets back to his desk and sits down and begins to write again, he sounds like a different guy. We ended with verse 8 which says, In God we boast continually. We will give thanks to Your name forever. And verse 9 starts off, But you have rejected us! And you have disgraced us! And you have not gone out with our armies! And we wonder, what happened? (laughs) This guy gets some really bad news between verses 8 and 9. Or maybe is this guy bipolar? (laughs) He's just up there soaring in the clouds in verse 8 and in verse 9. He is at the depths. He is at the lowest of lows. 
And he brings from verse 9 and on through the rest of this psalm, he brings some great complaint. Just listen. Go back to verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us. And you have not gone out with our armies. You made us to turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoil. You made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors and derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. We don't really know what the historical background is, the historical event that's behind this psalm. It just is attributed here to the sons of Korah, which means it could have been written any time from the time of David to a few hundred years before Christ. The sons of Korah were one of the chief group of musicians and singers in the temple So we really can't put it to anything in history. All we know is what we get here in the psalm. They have obviously suffered some disastrous defeat. Resulted in great loss of life and property and brought horrendous suffering and shame. Insurance companies. uh, Just recently we went through and redid all of the insurance on, you know, all of our property stuff and I was intrigued to realize that insurance companies still talk today about acts of God. We're in a godless society, but at least insurance. And legally, there's still the recognition that there are acts of God. And the writer of this song here says that the disasters that they have experienced, that they are enduring, are acts of God. He doesn't turn and blame uh, circumstance. You know, it was the heat wave, God. It was the floods. (laughs) He doesn't blame leaders. You know, if we had better generals, (laughs) our king, our president, or whatever, you know, stinks. He doesn't blame the fact that, you know, he doesn't say our armies. If we had a bigger military budget, it's not that. He doesn't blame fate. He doesn't blame karma. He puts the responsibility for their plight squarely on God's shoulders. You destroyed us. He brings a bold list of accusations against God. He says, you have rejected us and disgraced us. You abandoned our armies. You made us run for our lives. You, Lord, let the enemy get our stuff. You made us like sheep at slaughter. You turned us into exiles and scattered us among other nations. You have sold us like worthless trash. You have made us a laughing stock and objects of ridicule. You, God, did this. You destroyed us. Verse 15. He says, All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler in the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Just like in the first eight verses, he moved from the big group and he made this praise very personal. Now he 
in his complaint, he takes it and makes it very personal. He says, you've destroyed us, the nation. Lord, you've crushed me. Reminded that heartache and suffering is always personal. If you've been watching any news, you've seen dramatic footage of floods in West Virginia. Wildfires out in the West. It's spectacular footage and it depicts vast destruction as you just see hundreds of square miles burning and hundreds of, I don't know how many square miles flooding in the, in West Virginia. Vast devastation, but the reality is suffering is always personal. It's intensely personal to those families that lost a livelihood, a business, a property, a home, or a loved one. The singer says it's not just a national defeat, a national crisis, a national disaster. It's personal, Lord. And I'm crushed. Verse 17. All of this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. And yet you've broken us in the place of the jackals. You've covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered this? For He knows the secrets of the heart. And yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 17, he takes us back. He calls attention. He says to the covenant, we haven't been false to your covenant. You'll recall that in the Old Testament, back in the days of Moses, God made a covenant with Israel through Moses, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. That covenant, that contract promised great blessings to the nation, the people of Israel, Great blessings if they would follow Him, if they would listen to Him and obey Him. But it also promised curses. It also promised problems and defeat and exile if they broke the covenant and were disobedient to God and refused to follow Him. There were many times in Israel's history, as you read through the this, the Old Testament Scriptures, many times where they were unfaithful to God. Many times when they broke the covenant. But the songwriter says, not this time, God. Not now. We have not been false to the covenant. We have not turned back. If we had, we'd understand that what we're getting right now is what we deserve. You would be enacting the, the terms of the covenant and we, we deserve it, but we haven't and so I don't get it, God. I don't understand what is going on here. You've broken us and killed us. Why? doesn't make sense. And he goes on and he, he says, if we'd forgotten or turned to some other God, you would know it because you know every secret. And he, I think he's thinking back to the days of Joshua as he did earlier in, in the first verses. I think he's thinking back then. To the, you remember that time where Achan had 
taken some of the stuff when God said, don't take any of the stuff, destroy it all. Achan had taken a little and he'd hidden it under the floor of his tent. And disaster came on the people when they went out to battle at Ai. And I think he's saying, you know, God, if there was a hidden sin like there was in that time, if we in our hearts, he said, turned against you, you would know it because you know every everything. And then it would be just and deserved. But Lord, there is no hidden sin here to be discovered. And yet, for Your sake, we're killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep being served up for dinner. It doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. And he finds himself broken. He finds himself hurting and finds himself confused and desperate and almost faithless almost without any faith and trust left in God, but not quite. He still clings to just a thread, a sliver, a little, you know, one little bit of faith he's clinging to. He doesn't understand, but he knows God is there. And he knows God can save. And so he cries out with a desperate plea. He cries out and says, Rescue us. Verses 23 to 26. He says, Awake! Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up! Come to our help! Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. He cries out and he says, Wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? I don't really think he thinks God is sleeping. It just He's saying that's what it feels like. That it feels like you have just gone asleep, gone away, you've abandoned us. And we're desperate here. We're, he said we're, our soul is bowed to the ground. We're laying on the ground. Our belly clings to the dust. We don't have the strength and the ability to even stand up. And we're not in a comfortable place. We're just lying in the dirt in our misery. God, we have nothing else to do, to try, and no other place to turn. God, please rise up and help us. The psalm ends there. There is no answer from God. There is no rescue from their situation. There is not even a change of heart with the psalmist who goes, but God, I know that You are in control and we rejoice in You, God, because You're going to do something great and we just can't wait to see what it is. It's Other psalms end like that, not this one. This psalm is rarely read or preached in churches today. Probably sung even less. Because who wants to sing that? Oh Lord, here we are in the dust. We're so crushed and broken and we don't know where you are, but save us. Or angry. Where are you, God? (laughs) We don't sing songs like that 
God. It doesn't fit our template to sing a song of suffering. We like songs of happiness. We like songs with happy endings. We like songs that are full of joy and songs we can clap to. And that's what we sing in the modern church. This song, we're surprised to find it's really there. You mean this is really, really here? I don't know what to do with it. That's part of the problem. We See, we don't like to read something that leaves us hanging at the end. No good news and something that raises questions that maybe I just don't have a good answer for. We prefer our songs and our scriptures and our sermons to be like TV where every problem is solved in 60 minutes or less. But I'm glad that this psalm is in the songbook. The Jews, by the way, used to sing this a lot as people who are crushed and broken and hanging by a thread. You see, I think that it needs to be in our spiritual vocabulary today. While we live an awful lot of centuries and several continents removed from the songwriter, things really aren't so different. And sooner or later, if it hasn't happened to you already, there will be a time Most of us will experience a time when defeat, disaster, pain, suffering comes into our life and it shakes our faith to the core and we find ourselves grasping onto and clinging in onto some little sliver, some little shiver, some little thread of faith. Wondering if we can hold on, and some of you have been there. Some of you are there right now. Sometimes it comes through cancer or a disability or the loss of a child, broken dreams, betrayal, rejection, Abuse. And when it comes, you wonder, God, are you there? God, are you asleep? Or do you even care? Some of you have been there and you've asked those questions. Some of you may be this morning asking those very things. What do we do? Because when we get to that time, the trite, feel-good messages, they don't cut it. And when you're there, the just happy praise songs aren't maybe what you need to hear that day. And I'm so glad that Psalm 44 is in the songbook. Maybe not in our hymnal, but it's in God's songbook. 
And while this psalm does not end on a high note, it makes it real because very few of us go through dark times and 60 minutes later are on a high note. It's six months, six years of difficult time. And this psalm doesn't give pat answers. Hey, it's all going to be okay. Let's get back to singing a song. It doesn't give a postcard finish. But I think it's here because it gives us a great example of what we can do in such times. Or for those of us who aren't in those days right now, what we can do to be ready for those times when they come. And just in the few minutes I have left, I want to just look at four helps from this psalm. Four helps to survive devastating days. First thing we need to do is we need to prepare. Because if we're not in dark days ready already, I think what this psalm is here to remind us is that they are likely to come. We mentioned last week about, uh, I noted that our lawns have turned brown. They were so lush and green just a few weeks ago, the heat hit and the rain stopped for a bit and our lawns turned brown. You know, many of our lawns are going to suffer some permanent damage from this heat. They're not going to recover to what they were in the spring. Some will. The ones that will do best are the ones that were really healthy and strong before the heat came. See, a lawn that was well fertilized and well watered and was not stressed already by disease and by insects and by weeds, the lawn that was not stressed and was well Grounded, that lawn is more likely to rebound very well when the heat goes down a bit, when the rains come back. But likewise, the lawn that was not well watered and was not fertilized well and already was stressed by insects and weeds and disease is much more likely to wither and perish in the heat we've got right now. In a very similar way, if you and I are well grounded and well nourished, in a, well grounded in God's Word and well nourished in our relationship with God, we will have the strength and the resources to withstand such devastating times as has come on this songwriter. And it seems to me as I read this psalm that the only thing left, the only reason this guy is still standing is because he's still clinging to this bit of faith that he had because of the strength of the foundation that that he had before the disaster struck. I think it's the only reason he's still standing. So three quick suggestions that I would have for how we can prepare for tough times, discouraging days. First is continually rehearse, continually review, continually recall God's past faithfulness. One of the best things that you and I can do to increase and to grow and to fertilize our faith, if I may put it that way, 
is to recall and rehearse and remember God's faithfulness. Go to the Scriptures and look at what God did for His people all the way through the book. But don't just stop there. Look at the history of the church. Look at the history of Christianity. Read bibliographies of great men and women of the faith and rehearse how God has been faithful over the last 2,000 years. And then recall the stories of God's faithfulness in your own personal life, in the life of your family. Interesting, you see, that this songwriter, he recounts and he rehearses, he goes over God's faithfulness in verses 1 through 8. Did, did you notice where he learned it? Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us. See, one of the great blessings that we can do, moms and dads, grandparents, for our children as we can, we can teach history. And not just stories, you see, teach the faithfulness and the character and the nature of God through the stories of the Scripture, through the stories of the history of church and Christianity and through the history of God's faithfulness in our life and in the life of our family. Because when we do that, we're fertilizing a foundation of faith that can stand a drought. Continually rehearse God's faithfulness. Another thing we need to be doing is we need to be studying, we need to be learning the character of God. We need to go to the Scriptures and we need to look at the Scriptures for it is here that we know God. It is here that God has revealed Himself. It's here we learn about who God is. Theology, the study of God, of His person, of His character, of His nature, is not learning a bunch of dull, dry facts like, you know, the War of 1812 happened in 1812. Columbus, you know, the sail the ocean blue in 1492. And we, you know, we learned that kind of stuff in school. But learning the nature and character of God is not dull, dry history or dull, dry facts. It is a foundation for faith. It is that which becomes the anchor of our faith when the storm hits. You see, we need to know that as this songwriter in his those first verses, he talks about God's sovereignty. He talks about God's omnipotence, the fact that God is all-powerful. He talks about God's faithful love. Those become the anchors that I think become that thread that He clings to. So it is in our own life. We need to study the character of God. Thirdly, how we can prepare ahead is we need to grow a biblical view of suffering. A biblical theology of suffering. See, contrary to what an awful lot of folks think and what is said in an awful lot of Christian circles today, the Bible does not promise health and wealth in this life. From Joseph in Genesis to the book of Job to the prophet Jeremiah to John the Baptist to Jesus to the Apostle John and I just chose a bunch of J's. The Scripture tells us very clearly and demonstrates to us that many of God's choice and choicest servants suffered greatly. Some of them to death. Hebrews 11 put it this way. It said, others were tortured. Some 
faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison and they were stoned and they were sawed into and they were they were put to death by the sword and they wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. And this wasn't happening to the evil bad guy. This was happening to God's choicest servants, ones that the writer goes on to say, the world was not worthy of them. See, if it happened to the heroes of faith, those godly folks the world was not worthy of, can we not expect that some of us will go through disastrous times? Well, why would we go through it then? Why would we even endure that if Well, we'd do it for the same reason they did. If you go back and read Hebrews chapter 11, it says they weren't looking for a city here. They weren't looking for wealth and fame and 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 comfort here. It says they were looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. They were looking their their treasure, their hope, their what they were really longing for was heaven. That's where all of their hope was. So it is with us. Our hope is not in this life, but in the life to come. That's how we prepare very quickly. I've got just three more quick points. How do we survive devastating times? Secondly, we preach to ourselves. Voice the truth we know. See, I don't think that this singer was bipolar. I don't think that it was by accident that... I don't, I don't think that... Verses 1 through 8 were just he was having a great day and then he got some bad news and then he just finished off the psalm well with bad news. The bad news, the disaster had already come before I think he sat down with his pen. But in the first eight verses of this psalm, what he does is state the truth that he knows. Everything we talk about in point one there as we prepare, it's that that he restates. He tells the history. He tells the Scripture. We need to preach to ourselves what we know is true. Even when we don't feel it and we don't see it. We know this is true and we declare it. Thirdly, after we preach to ourselves, we also pray. Voice our, and when we pray, We need to voice our feelings. The singer, as he writes this song, it shocks us. It shocks us when he accuses God, when he speaks so boldly. But I think if the Scripture and the Psalms teach, especially the Psalms, teach us anything, that we shouldn't be afraid to be honest with God. This is how I feel, God. After all, He already knows. (laughs) We might as well verbalize what we really think and what we really feel. God, it feels like you're asleep. It seems that you've abandoned us. And God, I'm ticked. I'm angry. I'm hurt. Tell Him. Not only do we voice our feelings, we need to voice our need. As I read this, I was convicted. I thought how often it is that you and I, at least I, (laughs) will do everything but pray. Everything but say, God, here is what we, here's what I need. James says, 
you recall the book of James, he says sometimes we do not have because we don't ask. And we can even be lying there in the dirt, defeated and crushed and still haven't prayed. said, God, rescue me. Lastly, then we keep hanging on. Keep clinging to that thread of truth. Keep clinging to the thread of faith. Don't let go. Interesting, the psalmist's last words. He says, Redeem us for the sake of Your steadfast love. He's still clinging to that last bit of truth. God, You have, you are a God of steadfast, faithful, hesed love. I'm clinging to that, God. On the basis of that, because for the sake of Your love, redeem us, rescue us. You know, by the way, that's what faith is. Hebrews 11.6 says that faith is believing that God exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. Faith is clinging to that thread that God is and that God will do what He said. Faith is believing that ultimately, whether it's in this life or in the next life, it, it always it, it is always Worth it. It always pays to keep faithfully following God. And that's the only thing you have left and you cling to it. God, you'll do what you said because God, you are loving and you're faithful. Many of us love the book of Romans chapter 8. Paul in verse 36 of Romans 8 writes these words, Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Those words sound awfully familiar because he's quoting from Psalm 44. Interesting, the next verse, he quotes Psalm 44 to verse 22, and then Paul goes on to say this, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through what? Him who loved us. He's grabbing that last phrase of the psalm. It's according to your steadfast love. According to your faithful love. You see, we're going to be victorious when this is all done. Right now, we're being killed every day. We're being considered like sheep being served for dinner. But when it's all done and said with, we overwhelmingly conquer through your love. Through you who loved us. Paul is affirming the answer to the psalmist's prayer. Because of God's great love for us in Jesus Christ, no matter how deep our suffering, no matter how bad our circumstances, God is guaranteeing that He will deliver us to overwhelming victory. And all of us who trust in Jesus Christ will ultimately be redeemed and rescued and everything will be ultimately made right where it truly matters most, which isn't in my life today or next week or next month. It's in eternity. Ultimately, God will make it all right. So whatever you are experiencing today, or tomorrow, or next month, or next year. Dear saints, don't ever let go of this precious truth of God's steadfast love. 
in Jesus Christ, because of His love for us, we have hope that He will sustain us and redeem us even through life's most difficult days. Father, we needed this. There probably is someone, if not several folks, here today who are in dark times. seems the roof has come down and the floor is falling out. They needed to hear that in it all, You are a steadfastly faithful God. We need to cling to You. There's some of us who are not in that time, and Lord, how we need to not be complacent because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where we do have an enemy. Sooner or later, difficult days will come. Lord, may we be busy preparing for them so that whenever those days come, we do not wilt, we do not fade away, but rather we cling to You, our faithful and loving God. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.